on the Empire Podcast this week, we're Uncritch beyond our wildest dreams as Pixar giant Lee Uncritch drops by to talk about his new movie, Coco. Lovely Coco. All that and the usual news and nonsense on the movie podcast that often wonders, do you have to prove your legendary status? A lot of us do. Hello Pod, I'm Chris Hewitt and welcome to the Empire Podcast. Still recovering from having watched the now legendary Chevy Chase, Mike Reed debacle in the flesh. Believe me, it's everything you heard about and more. Anyway, enough of that. Uh, joining me this week are three colleagues, yes, three colleagues of such lethal cunning. And I'll be asking hard-hitting questions of them all, Mike Reed style. Uh, so, Helen O'Hara, what's your favourite English soccer team? <laughs> oh, I mean, it's so hard to choose. Uh, wait, no, I know the answer. Liverpool. That's correct, hey! Helen. Well done. Uh, James Dyer, tell me about your ancestors. Anyone who supported Everton. <laughs> I love that you know that, 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 is, that Everton exists. No, this is the true thing. The only thing I know about football is that people who support Liverpool hate Everton, so I decided to be an Everton fan. Okay. So you must be happy with their new signing from Arsenal? Come on, you blues. <laughs> he knew what's, they were blue. I did. He did. What's, what's their nickname? Oh, the blues. Where do they play? Oh, the blue place. Who manages them? Bluey. Okay. <laughs> you passed the test. Well done. Excellent. The correct answer, of course, is the Toffees, Goodison Park, and Sam Allardyce. Uh, anyway, enough of that nonsense. You've derailed me already. John Nugent. Hello. Do you remember the old song from Three Amigos, Blue Shadows? It doesn't matter. I'll play it anyway. Oh, you just kind of sing along, uh, even though I don't know the chords. How, how does that sound? That's, that sounds awful. <laughs> well, it was awful, my friend. It was awful. It's a very nice song. It's a lovely song. It's a really nice song. It's a lovely yeah. song. But uh, yeah, Chevy Chase didn't know the words. And <laughs> Mike Reed, so uh, Nick and I went last Saturday to the Chevy Chase Mike Reed thing. So it, was, it wasn't billed as a Chevy Chase Mike Reed thing, okay? So I'm sure you've, you've heard about it. Twitter went nuts with it. Uh, but I went along to this, an evening with Chevy Chase. I mean, Chevy Chase is famously quite a difficult interview. Yeah, well, I, I, was, I was kind of concerned about it from the off because, yes, Chevy Chase is, is as you say, he has, he's had his issues, he has had his demons in the past. And... Uh, He's perfectly willing. But the thing you realise with Chevy Chase is that he just doesn't have the stories. He's not a natural raconteur. Uh, so you need a, an interviewer who's engaged and who knows his work and is really going to bring the best out of him. Uh, and I, I, beforehand, we didn't know who it was. So I was going, who could it be? Is it, is it Ross? Is it Graham Norton? You know, uh, it's, it's obviously not me, you fuckers. Thanks for asking. Um, <laughs> and so then they came out and they went, please welcome your host, broadcaster, DJ, television presenter, and musician. And I'm going, who is this? Mike Reed. And I'm like, what? Mike Reed, the former Radio 1 DJ that is now best known, I think, for supporting UKIP. Better him a, than the recently, well, the, the, the deceased EastEnders star. Yes. Well, no, he would have been better. <laughs> Believe me. So Mike Reed comes out and then just proceeds to go full Alan Partridge for 75 <laughs> minutes. And, and they have this set up on stage, these two sofas, on stage, the massive stage, the Hammersmith Apollo, just huge, cavernous arena, 3,000-seater uh, auditorium. And these two sofas are there, and they're as far apart from each other as they can possibly be. And it's just a weird setup. And so they sit down, and they sit down so far away from each other, they sit at the furthest point of the sofas away from each other. <laughs> and so basically what you have then is two relatively old geezers, Jeffy's in his 70s, I think Mike Reed's either 50s or 60s, and they can't hear each other. The sound isn't great. Now, you know, Helen, you've, you've done stuff on stage before. Yeah. I've done stuff on stage before. Uh, and I'm going to give Mike Reed the benefit of the doubt to, a, to an extent <laughs> sure. because it's sometimes really hard to hear people. If you're on stage, like a big stage, and people are 
10, 15 feet away from you and the, the speakers are set up to broadcast to the audience but not to you, it, it can, can be, be a tough. problem. Yeah. yeah. Which is why you would normally try and arrange that that, that isn't the case. Yeah. So I was wondering, have they done a sound check? Sure. Have they not. met? You know, because they they, there wasn't a rapport there. And two or three minutes in, I turned to Nick and went, this is a car crash. This is a car crash. I hated every second, but I'm so glad I was there. <laughs> it was amazing. And I, I noticed after about 10 minutes, there was a guitar sitting beside Mike Reed's sofa. Oh. And I thought, why is that there? And then it became apparent when Mike Reed, who was only interested in talking about Chevy Chase's love of music, uh, Chevy Chase's ancestors, who do include, in fairness, Bing Crosby and a bloke who served in World War II. That's interesting to us, but not apparently to Chevy Chase. <laughs> and, uh, and his tennis stance, not necessarily the movies, but he, he got on to talk about Three Amigos. And there was this excruciating moment where he started talking about the Three Amigos uh, dance. And he meant to salute. Yes. He went, so tell me about how you came up with the uh, Three Amigos dance. And Chevy Chase started thinking, well, are you referring to My Little Buttercup? Or what are you, what are you, what are you talking about? And Mike Reed just couldn't find the right word. He just kept, no, the, the, the dance, the, the, the dance, the Three Amigos dance, the dance you do, the great dance, the Three Amigos dance. And people at this, at this point in the audience were beginning to turn on him. And so that's how he started talking about Blue Shadows. He went, you know, great song, Blue Shadows. And out comes the guitar. And then Chevy Chase, he starts leading Chevy Chase in the sing-song of Blue Shadows. And Chevy Chase can't remember the words. And Mike Reed doesn't know the chords. And it was the most excruciating thing. Oh. Oh, my, my intro was a direct reference to Mike Reed, who literally said at one point, do you have to prove your legendary status? A lot of us do. What does that even mean? It, I think it means that he thinks he was on the same level as Chevy Chase. To, a, to, a, to an English that? audience, at least. Because he hosted a Radio 1 Roadshow, Helen. <laughs> That's legendary status right there. Uh-huh. Uh, and then he started talking to Chevy Chase about catchphrases and did he get recognized in the street and do people shout things? His famous catchphrases. What are Chevy Chase's famous catchphrases? <laughs> I, hello, I am Fletch. And then someone in the audience took the moment to shout, Mike Reed, you're a twat. <laughs> and that became, that became the, the, defining, <laughs> the defining theme of the night. And then it all wrapped up rather quickly after that. It was great. Anyway, I feel busted enough about that. Shall we... Uh, should we move on? Should we have a question? Let's. Uh, this is a question from Sam Graham from Dubai. Hello, Sam. With the news of Quentin Tarantino's potential Star Trek film, which other director would you like to see get out of their comfort zone or more recognized genre and do something different? For me, I'd like to see Tim Burton stop making Tim Burton films and just make a great film. <laughs> That's an interesting existential question there, isn't mm. it? Can Tim Burton make a film that isn't a Tim Burton film? <laughs> when is a Tim Burton film not a Tim Burton film? <laughs> Oh, you've blown my mind. When it's big eyes? I guess. Big Fish? No, but that Big Fish has got Burton-esque flourishes yeah, as well, it has, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it totally does. Mm. It's a, there's a circus and Danny DeVito, for God's yes. sake. Come on. It's Totes Burts. Totes Burts. This, this is a good question. I mean, I'm, I always like to see directors go outside their comfort zone and do something different. I'd like to see a David Fincher romantic comedy. That, oh my God, that's a horrifying <laughs> prospect, isn't it? <laughs> Actually, I mean, I'm not we sure saw that in Gone Girl almost. <laughs> Did we though? Did we though? It was his Notting Hill. Is that your idea of romance? That is terrifying. <laughs> it was his Notting Hill. Yes, it had Richard Curtis written all over it. I'm mean, just a, meanwhile, I'm just, Richard yeah. Curtis does a psychodrama, you yeah. know. It's... I'm just a girl standing in front of a guy, just scaring the shit out of him generally. <laughs> oh, threatening God. him with murder and yeah. suicide. <laughs> okay, that sounds good. Uh, Fincher doing a rom-com would be amazing. Yeah. Right, take 98, and love each other! Do you know who would have to start it? Christian Bale. That is someone I genuinely want to see do a rom-com because he has rubbished them so many times. I would freaking love that. 
This is the most... This <laughs> you're, is terrifying. You're disturbed right now, aren't you? Christian Bale's intensity mirrored with David Fincher's intensity and technical prowess and meticulousness does not a bright and breezy rom-com make, I would Why say. do rom-coms have to be bright and breezy? Why yeah, can't Chris. they be something different? Why yeah. can't they be intense? Yeah, yeah. But like Fatal Attraction, but with lols. Yeah. No, it doesn't have to be murderous. It just has to be intense. Yeah, they can just pet the bunny before they boil it. That's not. I feel like we're like confusing what a rom com is right now, and indeed, I think doing a disservice to David Fincher, who I'm sure if he decided to make a romantic film, could make a romantic film. It is nice though when you get a director who's known for one thing, and then they do throw you a curveball. Like remember when Michael Bay came out with Pain and Gain, and we were all like, "What the what?" It wasn't great, but yes. it was. It's fine. Michael Bay, you're known for making terrible films, and here you have made a terrible film. But Tell me how you've stepped outside type of terrible film, and I think he deserved credit for that. Instead of a film about testosterone, you made a film about testosterone. <laughs> yeah. There were there were no explosions in it. There was an explosion in it. Was there? A little one. Yeah. There were a lot of guns. There were guns. Oh my god! <laughs> I watched it on a plane. I don't remember at all. I didn't mind it. I thought it was quite good. Oh, it was. I remember Ed Harris being fun. Ed Harris was fun. And the Rock's always fun. The Rock's it? always fun. Yeah. What about so, uh, Wes Anderson making an action film? <laughs> I would 100% watch that. I would that totally would watch Like really sym- symmetrical. A and really symmetrical action film. Well, quirky. actually, it'd be like Mad Max. You know, in terms of the sure. symmetry. Yeah. You know, in terms of the centrality. Well framed. Yeah, the the, the raging Tenenbaums. Is that what we're saying? <laughs> oh. Yeah, that's good. That'd be amazing. Bill Murray and Jeff Goldblum team up. <laughs> They must take down Tilda Swinton. <laughs> <laughs> the quirkiest action movie of the year. I, I'm I'm absolutely there for Wes Anderson action movie. I am not buying a ticket for a David Fincher rom-com starring Christian Bale. <laughs> How about a Joss Whedon silent movie? Hang on, wasn't there an episode of Buffy that was silent? There was actually, yeah. and it was brilliant. Okay. Oh, the that- title cards would just be like seven pages long. <laughs> <laughs> I want to see... A Richard Curtis horror film, and I think we've already seen we already the trailer one. for it. Uh, you know the recut uh, Andrew Lincoln scene from Love Actually that someone's cut to kind of horror music. That mm. is the film I want to see. Love Actually is a horror film. It's fantastic. Leave it alone. It's not fantastic. It is. It's, it's, it's oh the second God. greatest Christmas movie. It is. Oh. Really? Oh. <laughs> and today, in indefensible views. <laughs> this is just me and Terry dying alone on this island. Isn't live it? in defense of Love Actually. That's going to be the name of my autobiography. <laughs> <laughs> Is it going to be short? (laughs) It might not be a longest book. It'll only be available. It's a blank page. $7.99. What a great get-rich-quick scheme we've just stumbled upon. Also, it's so unlikely for you to have that as the name of your autobiography. In defense of love, actually. The world's angriest, most cynical man. Well, You know, like uh, like Michael Bay and Penn again, I'm playing against type. I see. Mm -hmm. But do we really want to see directors step outside the comfort zone because, you know, as a big big horror fan it always annoyed me when like Wes Craven would make Music of the Heart or you know when he we, we were just try, trying to scare people it's like you're good at it mate just get back in your box get back in your box and please charming. me <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing out of your box Craven get back in there that's what I would yell at him but he's unusual though because he his name is synonymous with horror to the extent that his name appears in the title of some of his films you know like he is horror guy you know in the same way that if John Carpenter did Love Actually too, that would just freak you the fuck out but even John Carpenter is his, you know, he not everything is horror. No, not everything. His, you know, Starman and Big Trouble in Little China, Halloween, the usual stuff. <laughs> oh, yes, knockabout sex comedy Halloween. I'd forgotten about that. You see the thing this week where uh, Rotten Tomatoes tried to kill John Carpenter? Yes, I did. I did. <laughs> they failed. He cannot be killed. <laughs> There's no stopping what can't be stopped. He was 70 years old this week, John Carpenter. God rest his soul. Um, <laughs> 
Hey, someone else had a birthday this week, didn't they, Helen? Lin-Manuel Miranda. Now, he's that, that little chap from Hamilton, right? <laughs> James, you've listened to it now. You should have more respect. Do, hasn't he been... He's been spamming Twitter with lots of footage of him when he was a kid. Is This a, this is the thing that's been happening recently. He hasn't been spamming Twitter. He put up a couple of uh, quite adorable pics um, of him as a kid. Right. Very sweet. Yes. What age is he? What age is he now? Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know. I think he's younger than all of us except John, which is embarrassing given how much he's accomplished with his life and how much we have accomplished with our lives. It's all relative, though, isn't it, Helen? He he doesn't have a, a podcast that's listened to weekly by dozens of people. I mean, that that's true. Mm. But then against that, he has a, you know, a musical that's watched weekly, daily, in fact, by thousands of people. I don't know. That's, that's, that's your boat, and fair enough. But, uh, uh, Pulitzer Prize, I think, and a bunch of Tonys. Really? Yeah. Pulitzer Prize? Yeah, a Grammy. I know several Tonys. James won, Lin-Manuel Miranda won. <laughs> this is going to go to extra time. Just like games do, James. At, um, what's the one oh, with Everton again? With the Blues, yeah. With the Blues? Yeah, the yeah. one with the Blues. When they, I love it. love it when they play the Reds. It's extraordinary. <laughs> it's extraordinary. Look, he knows two colours of shirts. This is amazing. <laughs> oh, you're an absolute idiot. Uh, anyway, let's move on. Let's move on. Uh, that's, that's the question answered to the obvious satisfaction of... Sam Graham from Dubai. Sorry, Sam. Uh, if you want to have your question right out in the Empire podcast, you can do so via a number of methods. You can find us on Twitter, where we're at Empire Magazine. You can use the hashtag Empire Podcast. We're on Facebook as Empire Magazine. And we're on email as Sam Graham found to his cost. We're podcast at empireonline.com. Right, should we move on? Let's move on to discuss this week's movie news. Hurrah. What's happened? Oh, I tell you what's happened. Yeah, what's let's, that? Let's discuss something that happened last week. In the time-honored tradition, uh, Hollywood dropped some major movie news the second we stopped recording. Gore Verbinski mm-hmm. has left Gambit. Uh, New Mutants have been pushed back 10 months. Deadpool 2 has been brought up two weeks. All right, it seemed more major in my head. But <laughs> Gambit yeah. is never, ever going to happen, is it? It's just not. Maybe it will. Maybe this is the last speed bump before the... the- Acceleration. They have been bit. teasing that film for longer than I can remember. Yes, so, and I true. really want to see it. I think it was due to come out in February of next year, and I think I think that's right. And I think it's been pushed back to June, so they still have a release date they're working towards. So just just no one to do it. Just no one to direct. Right. The thing. I'll do it. I will do it. I right. This I'm throwing down the. Go- I will direct Gambit. Someone call me. Ladies and gentlemen, Hollywood, Hollywood call me now. You heard right. it here first. Talk, talk me through. You got thirty second elevator, elevator pitch. Okay. Well, in a fascinating term of uh, turn of events, Remy LeBeau joins Everton. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> hang, on, hang on, hang on. We're going to do this right. We're going to do this right. What are you doing? You've got 30 seconds. No, I can't do a 30-second pitch okay. for Gambit. Sorry, I'm, to, a, James, it's I'm a high-powered Fox executive. Uh, you have somehow blundered into my, into my office. Oh, no. You have I 30 can't. seconds to pitch me Gambit. Go. Um, uh, Remy Lebeau, he's French. He's in France. He's uh, thrown French. thrown off. He's, 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 well, he's, 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 he's Cajun, but he's gone back to his roots. We're, we're retconning him. We're rebooting him as a Frenchman. And he falls afoul of uh, Brexit because he wanted to move to England and he can't. And it's very unusual. And he joins Everton and becomes a footballer. Uh, and then curiously gets transferred to Liverpool and the end of the season of champions or whatever it is you call it when they go for the big cup thing. And uh, then he meets the X-Men and falls in love with Rogue who it's weird. Wow. That's that's incredible. I would watch that film. I mean, (laughs) I would watch that. It's no Patton Oswalt's Star Wars pitch, is it? But... (laughs) 
But I've, of course, he could use his powers, couldn't he, to charge up the football with unstoppable kinetic energy? So yes, he could. We could. Yes, he would indeed. be a hell of a football player potentially if yes. he could harness that yes. skill. I'm, I'm all for it. Uh, so this is happening now. We've agreed. This is happening. Uh, this is really, really good. Helen, do you want an elevator pitch? No, I don't. Okay. No, I can. John, I how, can do you not feel you could top that one? <laughs> how, how are you feeling about an elevator pitching gambit? <laughs> uh, I'm okay, thanks. Yeah, sure. I, I imagine yeah. they already have a script of some sort. Oh, right? Helen, that's disappointing. How how naive? <laughs> they were two months away from filming. You think they have a script? You're right. Should it should it take place somewhere where there are lots of cards? <laughs> Like a world <laughs> poker tournament or like yes. Vegas Gambit or does poker. New Orleans or somewhere. So right, scratch it, we're rewriting this. All right, so in, in case you don't know what Gambit's powers are, it's not, he can charge objects with yeah. kinetic energy and, and then chuck them at people. Chuck them at people. <laughs> but he usually uses cards because it's cool. Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, a, he's a chucker. He's like Ricky Jay, but with powers. <laughs> I don't know what that means. So I just want to give him, ah. I want to give him as much ammunition as possible. So I feel like somewhere with loads of cards would be pretty cool. Right, so when Remy LeBeau... Yeah finds himself in Las Vegas for yeah. a wild weekend with his superhero buddies and then that way you can get in like the rest of you can get like Deadpool along you can have Sweet. they're all having like a little cameo thing going on it's like the hangover but with it's but like with it's like the four star masterpiece Molly's game yes it's exactly like that yes, would you it is. not encourage excellent him? Molly's game 2 which would obviously be five stars because it would be even better than the original and now features mutants so six stars I mean it's and part of the MCU so seven seven stars for Molly's game 2 Molly's gambit Oh, oh, extraordinary. We got it. We got extraordinary. it. Someone call Jessica Chastain immediately. <laughs> Jessica Chastain is Remy LeBeau. Yeah. Or she Molly and she teams up with so with well, Ch- Channing Tatum is still. Actually. I don't know. I think I think Channing Tatum is still Gambit, right? He's been with the character since I don't know, the early 19th century. <laughs> yeah. He's still wearing that t-shirt. What t-shirt? Been, you know, he turned up Comic-Con wearing the little Gambit t-shirt oh, I think yeah. he's, he's worn it a few times he's been oh. waiting by the phone for years just like ready to go he yeah. hasn't starred in any films but at, at the risk of making a vaguely serious point <laughs> I do It'll wonder never catch on I do wonder if the fact that Channing Tatum who has stayed with this character now and clearly has a big affinity for this character I wonder if that might be one of the reasons why directors are doing a revolving door thing in this movie so Rupert Wyatt is gone come and gone who else Doug Lyman Doug Lyman and Gore Verbinski. And so you have directors who come in, and directors obviously have a vision, and Channing Tatum has a vision, mm. and I wonder if the two sometimes don't necessarily match. I mean, not just Gambit, is it? So New Mutants push back by a year. Mm. Ten months. That's basically a year. That's rounded up to a year. It's nearly a year. That's okay. at least a whole football season. So, uh, but that's, I mean, what's... Those have got to be some worrying test screenings. I mean, we had a trailer for New Mutants. Yeah, we've we? had a trailer. We've seen it. I was fascinated by it, like an X Men horror film. I really want to see it. Maybe, but, maybe they're not worrying test screenings. Maybe it's just looking for a better release slot. Or maybe, but you, I mean, what kind of release slot is ten months away? Well, Surely there's a slot before then. Well, I mean, these days everything seems to be planned out about four years in advance. Yeah, I mean, it's not just like oh, we screened it; it was great. Everyone thought it was brilliant, but we need nearly a year to make it just that bit better. It may I also, know. I mean, it could also be something like they're trying to tie it into something else in Maybe. some fashion, and they need time to cast the whatever. Let's give it the benefit of the doubt. I mean, it's an in, it's an interesting idea. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think I I'm, I applaud the effort, and I I do very much want to see it. So, you know, can I please see it? Yes, but not for another 10 months. Shit. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's certainly an interesting thing. Uh, you pushing a film back that far, this close to release, is often not a good look. But, as you say, 
We gave Mike Reed the benefit of the doubt. Let's give <laughs> New Mutants the benefit of the doubt. New Mutants, you're a twat. That's a massive diss. Wow. <laughs> and um, Deadpool 2 moved forward by, just by two weeks, but enough to cause a seismic shift because it's moved one week ahead of Solo, a Star Wars story. Mm. It is interesting because mm. you would think those two would be a little bit in competition. And Solo is, I mean, they released an official synopsis this week. Yes, I was going to say. Massively unenlightening. Should I, I have read to it say. for you? Please do. It is. Board the Millennium Falcon and journey to a galaxy far, far away in Solo, a Star Wars story, an all-new adventure with the most beloved scoundrel in the galaxy. Through a series of daring escapades deep within a dark and dangerous criminal underworld, Han Solo meets his mighty future co-pilot Chewbacca and encounters the notorious gambler Lando Calrissian in a journey that will set the course for one of the Star Wars saga's most unlikely heroes. I mean, Why did you read it in that voice? It's very hard to say. I started and kind of felt like I had to finish. <laughs> I, I mean, if you take the adjectives out of that, it's about three words long for a yeah. start. And it doesn't tell you anything. It only tells us what we already knew, which is it's got Han Solo, it's got <laughs> Chewbacca, yes. it's got Lando Calrissian. It's the world's most useful. It's yeah. got the Millennium Falcon. Yeah. This Terrible. film is out quite soon. And we have seen no trailer. We have, let's be honest, no synopsis. We haven't even seen an p- official picture I mean, yet. So yeah. We don't even know what it looks like. It's, it's, it's weird. It's, mm. it's, it's, I would have sworn blind that they would move it to Christmas. Not least of all, because that slot seems to be working quite well for them. But also, you know, given the change in director, it, it would have made sense to give themselves a little bit more breathing room. But no, fair play to them. Of course, uh, this Christmas, there's once again a Fantastic Beasts film. Maybe they're running scared of that. Yeah, or Aquaman. Maybe they're terrified of Aquaman. <laughs> it's, I mean, all things are possible in an infinite universe. Maybe not that one, though. Um, but Fantastic Beasts, colon, The Crimes of Grindelwald, uh, yeah. released some new <laughs> images this week showing that, what do you know, he goes to Paris, which we already knew. And, uh, and also that Dumbledore was a bit of a fox back in the day, so that was exciting. Yeah. Um, but yeah. I, I haven't seen those pics, but is it Jude Law in that coat again? He's not in a coat, he's in a, he's in a waistcoat, sort of 1930s waistcoat, which is always a good look for basically everyone. That's exciting. Mm. Uh, I'm excited to see Jude Law as Dumbledore. I'm less excited for the film itself, but mm. uh, fingers crossed that this one will, you know, for me, turn around the disappointment of the first movie. Well, I mean, like I said about the first movie, I think that was doing a lot of world building and I'm hope- hoping that, like the later Potters did, this one can now just have fun in that world. Fingers crossed. Later Potters were fun? Later Potters were fun. Full stop, not question mark. <laughs> mine, was, Someone... mine was very much a question mark. <laughs> I did not like the later Potter films. I, I enjoyed all the Potter films, to be honest. I, I'm a Potter fan. I just I wish someone would tell David Yates for this particular franchise there are colours other than beige. You can, you're allowed to branch out. There's reds and he blues had that and greens. Coat. What are you talking about? That He's, blue. Yeah. Oh. And no, Dumbled- no, it's Dumbled- blue. Coat. It was a very particular bluey shade of beige. It was teal, at worst. Dumbledore's coat is that's blue again, isn't it? Dumbledore's Probably. lovely coat. Lovely coat. Yeah, which I believe you can get in Sarah for men. <laughs> uh, some interesting news about a film I'm very excited about, and it's a new Ang Lee movie, Gemini Man, uh, which is this long gestating script that's been in Hollywood. I, I can remember reading about it in Empire before I started working for Empire, so that was way back in the 19th century. <laughs> and um, this, this is that very much Ballyhooed script about a hitman, an aging hitman who finds himself up against his uh, worst nightmare himself, uh, a clone of his younger self. And for years, people like Harrison Ford and Mel Gibson were attached to this. Uh, and now Will Smith is going to star in it for Ang Lee. And it's added two more cast members this week. Clive Owen as the baddie. 
What? As no. the other baddie. There's obviously the other baddie is Will Smith, playing a younger Will Smith. Sure. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who apparently beat out Tatiana Maslany to bag the, the, the role of someone who teams up with the aging hitman as he tries to fight off his younger self. I'm excited about this movie. Cool. I think it could be really cool. Yeah, Ang Lee's so, always good. Sounds a bit like Looper. Uh, well, yeah, but it, it, predates, it predates Looper by, by, by a decade or so, I would say. This, this has been knocking around Hollywood for a long time. With a shade of Orphan Black, also starring Tatiana Maslany. Yeah. <laughs> uh, actually, this is pretty much the plot to the first Hitman video game. You know, clones. Is it? Yeah, clones, Hitman clones. Well, no, it's, it shares that one thing in common. Huh. Uh, other casting news this week that, that caught my eye is that the aforementioned Quentin Tarantino movie, uh, which is based around the Charles Manson, uh, the Manson family and the Manson mm-hmm. murders, Manson family murders, um, has added Leonardo DiCaprio to a cast, which uh, which may end up including the likes of Brad Pitt, Tom Cruise, Al Pacino, Margot Robbie. I mean, this isn't a bad <laughs> this isn't a bad cast, is it? No. That's cool. That all comes together. And, you know, DiCaprio was great last time he worked with Tarantino, so... Yep. Mm-hmm. Look forward to that. Um, uh, so, yeah, this is DiCaprio who's going to be playing an aging actor. So, apparently, it's it's almost about two actors who are trying to get their break in Hollywood whilst the Manson family murders are, are happening at the same time. Uh, Margot Robbie is apparently being courted to play Sharon Tate, who, of oh. course, was, was killed by the Manson family. Uh, and Cruz might be playing a prosecutor because uh, it, it's a very sprawling thing. So apparently Brad Pitt passed in that, so it won't be Cruz and Pitt, it'll be just Cruz. But I'm excited about that, because Cruz, working with an A-list director, like a, like a you know, he hasn't really done that for for a while, I'd say. He's obviously worked with Stone and Spielberg and Scorsese and Paul Thomas Anderson, but lately he's been doing lots and lots of blockbusters. So a chance to, to show that, once again, there's a great actor in there, would be, would be much welcome. And Al Pacino apparently has had a role written for him, by Tarantino. Huh. I'm excited by this. This could be, this could be really, really intriguing. Mm-hmm. See how it goes. Helen is clearly not excited by it whatsoever. I, yeah, what? I don't I'm... know that we need another Manson film, to be honest, but sure, you know. How many have great. we had? I, it's more about the timing and the... Uh, we've had a lot, actually, many of them on TV, but it's more about the timing and the... I don't know. There's something icky about it. The timing of a release date is not great, no. uh, we, we, which we discussed in the podcast we already, did. but... but any new Tarantino film is is exciting for me, so I'll, I'll be intrigued to see how he handles this material. Some Creed casting this week, did we yep, say? It was, the yeah. son of Ivan Drago has been cast, and it's twenty twenty seven year old brick shit house Florian Montano. <laughs> um, this man is extraordinarily muscular. Um, Are you sure you want to go on record as calling him a brick shit house? Like, is, could that in any way be pejorative? Are we I saying that I should have learned from Chris's experience with Scott Atkins? <laughs> Do not call out big strong people on the podcast. I'm, oh. I'm sorry, Florian. I didn't. It's fine. It's all good. Yeah, but he's, he's got to be. He's got to be big, right? Yeah. Playing yeah. the son of Ivan Drago, you've got to be a brick shit house. You got to be. Yeah, it's gonna be yeah. awesome. Uh, there's a, a a topless picture of him on Instagram for anyone who wants to see what it looks like. <laughs> and marvel at his pecs. And that topless picture is on James's Instagram. <laughs> if you want to take a look at that. That's um, true. He's mighty um, mighty, just letting it all hang out. Though, pretty much. <laughs> Hashtag no filter. And Barry Jenkins uh, has cast Chadwick Boseman in Expatriate. Um, which is exciting because obviously his last film was astonishing. Um, he's co-written this one. The details are all under wraps, but apparently it, it revolves around the hijacking of a plane in the 1970s. That's cool. Very exciting. Uh, as is indeed the news that, um, of all people, Bob Odenkirk is about to star in his own action movie. What now? Bob Odenkirk, 
who, as we all know, plays Saul Goodman. Yes. Uh, or Jimmy McGill. And he's in this week's The Post. He's in this week's The Post. We'll be talking about that very, very soon. And he is about to star in his own action movie. Are we it's sure called... he's not like the guy in the van? No, it's going to be it's going to be about him. It's going to be like a sort of Liam Neeson type thing. And the idea of having Bob Odenkirk as a very specific energy, uh, being in a revenge-driven action movie, is really exciting to me. It's going to be written by Derek Kolstad, who wrote John Wick and John Wick Chapter Two, and obviously John Wick Chapter Three, and another TV thing, The Continental. TV series was confirmed this week. Mm. Very, very exciting. Yes. And uh, David Leach and Chad Stahelski, who directed John Wick 1 together yes. and then split apart to do Atomic Blonde, Deadpool 2, and Ch- John Wick Chapter 2, are going to be executive producers in this as well. And Odenkirk's going to produce. I've, yes. I'll, I'm all over this. All over this like a, like a rash. I'm just looking at the m- amount of news in the week. Shane Black doing a TV show reboot of The Avengers which will be called Steed and Mrs. Peel, because obviously you can't call something the Avengers anymore. <laughs> Super confusing. Hey, speaking of the Avengers. Yes. Uh, Anthony Mackie was at a, conference, a convention and talked about a scene in Infinity War, which will apparently involve, he said, 40 superheroes all at once. Mm-hmm. I feel like he's rounding up, but I'm still like super excited. This, this is, is like, this is sex scene. I was about to say, this is Chris's I mean, idea of porn right here. Yeah. I've got some news. I think I'm going to... Yeah. You, you're moving Chris on from the Avengers, John. Do you know nothing? Please. <coughs> I, I I think he's wrong. So we got we got like the Avengers, Here we go. the Guardians, yes. some bad guys. Like it, it seems like it would struggle to get over twenty five. Yeah, every time I make a list of who's in Infinity War, how often is that? It's uh, every day. It's a, <laughs> you've seen my my uh, my notebook, my lunchbox. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Chris loves Tony, Steve. Oh God, T'Challa, Natasha. Yeah, it's it's yeah. So there's what six six Avengers, nine Avengers, ten Avengers, seven, six <laughs> six Guardians of the Galaxy, Spider Man, Doctor Strange, Ant Man, the Wasp, Black Panther's well, mates, all Black Panther's mates. Yeah, his 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 top mates. Maybe someone invited Dormammu. Maybe Dormammu is going to turn up as well. That so yeah, I think Bucky? he's I think Did he's rounding up. I hadn't had Bucky. Bucky. Yeah, I don't see how he gets forty here. Unless I, I, don't, unless I think he's massively rounding up. Yeah, unless there are cameos we haven't heard about yet. And then, but then he may also be including. He may mean super beings, so he may be including some yes some baddies. There. Yes. All right, but that's that's surely enough superhero movie news now, right? Um, let's move on to the news that the Flash movie has a director. <laughs> Two directors. Two directors. These are the guys who wrote at least one of the drafts of Spider-Man: Homecoming and directed the Vacation. Uh, reboot that Chevy Chase was in but Mike Reed didn't talk about. Is it two directors or is it one director moving really fast from chair to chair? (laughs) (laughs) No, it's John Francis Daly and Jonathan Goldstein. They're in negotiations to direct the film. This is still called Flashpoint at this point. Flashpoint is a very famous relatively new Flash story where he Mm -hmm. goes back in time to fix stuff in the DC universe. (laughs) What, is he going to go back and reshoot Batman versus Superman, Caroline Dawn of Justice? That's right. I went there. No, he tr- he tries to go back in his in his own life, doesn't he, and, and save his mother's life. Yes, um, which has horrific unintended consequences. It's a wonderful flash, except not. Except it's like a, it's not a wonderful flash. I think is the is the basic. Back to the message. flash part two. Yes, that's much closer. Right. Yeah. Okay. But in all seriousness, though, could could this not be a reset for the DC universe? Could they could they reset it now? Is this, is this their way out of... I don't, is this how they recast Batman? I don't think do. so. I think they just quietly recast Batman. They do a Hulk on him. I mean, no, I mean, who's going to care? It's fine. Hmm. <laughs> who's going to care? <laughs> who's gonna care? <laughs> I just said who's going to care about something to do with Batman. <laughs> oh, my word. 
everyone's going to care because you know it's it's the definitive screen portrayal of that character. <laughs> what I've got I one bit so. of news. Holy oh, shit! God. One last bit. Ben Wheatley is yes. making a film. Yes, he's always making. Morning, I mean, didn't it? D- yeah. this, I mean, is this news though? Because he's always making a film. He's always I mean, got like three films on the go. That's just default news. Ben Wheatley is making a film. So, so there was Freak Shift, but he's moved on to uh, a film which I can only assume has the working title of. Colin U. Anus. Um, this is a film he shot in nine days, isn't that right? 11 days. 11 days. Yeah. Slacker. Yeah. <laughs> Slacker Wheatley. Yeah, and it's got uh, Sam Riley, who was in Free Fire with Sam him, Riley. And uh, Neil Maskell from Kill List and High Rise. Neil Maskell. And that's kind of all we know about it, I think. Hey, John, is Randy Newman in that film by any chance? No. 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 You don't think no. so? I think no. it'd be great if Randy Newman no. wrote the music for that film, don't you think? No. Hey, who's this? Who's just walked into no. the. Please stop. <laughs> Please. Stage intervention. Hey, everybody. Oh, God. God. It's time to write the soundtrack to the new Ben Wheatley film. Is Mike Reed available to host the podcast instead? It could only be an improvement. That's exciting news, though, John. Yes, isn't it? Yeah. Ben um, Wheatley is always good. Yeah. And uh, this is a stealth movie, isn't it? Because this wasn't announced and this hasn't been... Yeah, it just nobody knew about it until yeah. uh, he posted something on Instagram. Um yeah, there we go. Huge news. Huge news. Colin Uanus, looking forward to that. Very exciting stuff. Right, that's enough news. It is time for this week's guest. He is a long standing pillar. Why have I said it like that? Pillar. Pillar. He's a long standing pillar of Pixar's success. I think I said pillar because of Pixar. Mm-hmm. You don't say Pixar, do you? You say Pixar. So pillar. Yeah. Pixar. I mean, it's a Spanish name, pillar. It is, isn't it? Yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating diversion. We've all learned a little bit about ourselves today. I think so. Uh, he's a long-standing pillar of Pixar's success. Uh, first, of course, as an editor, uh, editor, and then a director. Uh, first of Toy Story 3, and now this week's Coco. He is, of course, Lee Unkrich, and he came into the booth this week to have a good old natter with John here. John, give yes. the folks a quick uh, idea of what to expect. Uh, we talked about Coco and Pixar, and I asked him about... Jesus, you're really pushing the envelope <laughs> on this one. Yeah, I asked him all the questions he wasn't expecting. Wow. Uh, and I asked him about the breakfast bar at Pixar, because I've heard it's good. It's the cereal, cereal bar, and stuff. yeah. You've been, you've been to Pixar, haven't you? I have, yeah. So jealous. So much cereal. Yeah. I actually didn't have the cereal. And with that... <laughs> Here's Lee Unkrich. We are delighted to welcome to the Empire Podcast, Lee Uncritch. How are you, sir? I'm great. It's great to be here. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Uh, we're here to talk about Coco, which uh, I saw at the weekend and it made me cry ugly tears three times. <laughs> Sorry uh, about that. No, thank you. Um, so you've taken this film around the world now. What's What's been your sort of favourite reaction? Well, I mean, it's been great seeing how well the film has been embraced all over the world because while we were making it... Um, you know, there was some concern that we were telling a story that was so culturally specific since it takes place in Mexico. Um, you know, there were questions about how it would play in other parts of the world and if the the themes and the ideas that we were talking about would kind of be universal. Um, we tried to make it as universal as possible while embracing the beauty of Mexico and this tradition of, of Dia de Muertos, the Day of the Dead. Um, but it, it has resonated with people around the world. And there have been some surprises. Um, it, the film has done very, very well in China. Oh, right. Oddly enough, it's made, um, it's done very well. In fact, I was told that it's made more than all of the other Pixar releases in China combined. Wow. Which is kind of incredible. Um, we also did really, really well in Mexico, which uh, I'm very proud of, very grateful, um, because we worked very, very hard from the beginning to tell a story that was culturally accurate and respectful 
And that wasn't easy. I mean, it was, it was something that consumed us each and every day that we were making the film, trying to do it right. And uh, to see the film um, kind of accepted with open arms and, and uh, so beloved in Mexico. Mm. You know, it's the biggest film of all time of any movie in Mexico, yeah. which is also very exciting. Yeah. Um, that's just been fantastic. I mean, th that must f seem like the most important audience, right? Because it is so steeped in their traditions and their culture. Well, if we hadn't, if we hadn't made a film that they could embrace, then we would have really have messed up, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, big time. So, uh, we were grateful for that, and then beyond that, we we've been grateful that the film has uh, resonated with audiences all over. Yeah. So just to go back to the beginning, I know that Pixar likes to take their time with the, the development of story. Um, was this a, a tough nut to crack story-wise? Uh, it was in a lot of ways. Um, all of our movies tend to be difficult, uh, you know, at one point or another. On Coco, I knew from the beginning that I wanted to tell a story set against Dia de Muertos, um, but we 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 didn't have this story, this exact story that ended up being in the finished film. That took us, you know, about eight months of work before we kind of stumbled upon this story. Uh, we We had gone down a couple of different paths early on. And those stories didn't pan out for one reason or another. Um, but even once we settled on this, this idea of a little boy who wants to be a musician but lives in a family that hates music and doesn't allow music and going off on this adventure to try to find his musical idol in the land of the dead. We had a lot of the, the basic building blocks of that early on, but the devil's always in the details. Mm -hmm. You know, figuring out the best way to tell a story and... You know what orders this order the scenes should be in, and and how to lay the trail of breadcrumbs so that by the end of the film, hopefully the audience is really emotionally invested and feels something like you did mm. when you saw the film. Um, that that uh, that takes a lot of careful work to kind of lay the pipe for a strong emotional ending. Yeah, and and Pixar are famous for their research as well. Was there a lot of uh, trips to Mexico? To we did. I first pitched this uh, idea, this concept, in September of 2011, and right away, uh, within a few weeks, we got on planes and headed down to Mexico for Dia de Muertos, which oh, wow. takes place the first two days of November. So that was the first of many trips that we took down to Mexico, traveled all over the country, visited big cities, small villages, uh, went out to some very rural areas in Mexico, really in an effort to not only document and, and um, you know, build up a library of hundreds of thousands of photographs to use as reference for all the different sets we had to build, um, but it was also very important to me to spend time with families. We, we mm -hmm. split up. And into small groups and would go spend entire days with families who would welcome us into their homes and show us how they celebrated uh, this holiday and and just let us observe their day-to-day -day life. And all of those little details, all those little specific family interactions that we um, that we observed, and many, many of them ended up uh, becoming a part of the story that we told. Hmm. And, and was there tequila involved at all? There was no tequila, but there was a lot of mezcal. Okay. I had never had mezcal before I started working on this film, but I've grown to love it. It's like an offshoot of tequila. Okay. It's kind of a smokier uh, drink. But I actually spent a whole day with a family whose family business was making mezcal. Right. So I got to observe the whole process from beginning to end. Okay. I, I've never had mezcal either, but uh, it, it sounds nice. Yeah. I, well, Smoky I agree is like nice. It. Um, uh, I, I love the... The design of uh, the land of the dead—it's such a uh, in inventive world. 
Um, I particularly love the, the spirit animals. Mm-hmm. Was was there a lot of uh, character design? Was there a lot of rejected designs for those things? Well, the fun thing about those, they're actually called alabrijes, and they have been a part of Mexican folk art since the 1930s or so. Um, uh, there was this uh, artist named Pedro Linares who fell very ill and, and had a high fever. And in in his fever state, he had hallucinations and dreams about these creatures. He oh, imagined wow. these colorful creatures that were kind of a mashup of different animals and very brightly colored and patterned. And when he woke up from uh, being sick, he started to create these um, uh, creatures as art. And um, they have really become a a strong part of Mexican culture. If you travel down to Mexico, you see them everywhere, but primarily in Oaxaca, um, which is one of the places that we visited. So those creatures don't really strictly have anything to do with Dia de Muertos, with the Day of the Dead, but they were such a strong part of Mexican culture and so interesting to us. We just thought it would be amazing to see them come to life and create our own version of them. So. Um, we had a lot of fun designing a lot of different creatures, like uh, Pepita is kind of the main alabrije mm. you see in Coco. Um, but you know, one of the problems on this film is that um, the, the the scope of the film is so immense. Uh, there was a lot that we had to create in not a lot of time, relative, uh, relatively. So um, one of the things that we did to create the alabrije is to kind of cut corners and save a little money is we repurposed a lot of animals that we had created for other Pixar movies in the past. So you actually can recognize a lot of creatures that we created for the movie The Good Dinosaur in Coco. We kind of uh, mashed different animals together and gave them new kind of coloring and shading and textures and and created our big menagerie of spirit animals. So sort of neon dinosaurs almost. Yeah, Yeah, I think we stayed away from dinosaurs in there, but there were so many other creatures that we made that, yeah, we were able to kind of build out this library of creatures. Ah, brilliant. Um, And as you say, you know, this is such a musical film. It's almost Pixar's first musical. Um, Are you you a musical person? Were you involved in the the sort of... The, the musical side of it? Yeah, I was very involved. I mean, I didn't write the, the songs myself. I'm not that talented. <laughs> but uh, luckily, I work with some really talented people who were able to step in and, and create some great songs for us. Um, you know, early on on the film, I had toyed with the idea of doing a full-on musical because uh, we hadn't done that at Pixar, mm. and I thought it would be something interesting to do. Um, but ultimately, we kind of went where the story took us and what the story seemed to want to be was a film that was filled with music. You know, they had music in its DNA, but wasn't a, a you know traditional breakout into song musical. Mm. Um, I actually used as a model uh, the Coen Brothers film, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Right. Uh, just it's such a great film, and, and music is such an important part of the storytelling. You can't yeah. really separate music from that movie, so I wanted to create something that uh, was in a similar vein. Um, so, you know, we embraced all kinds of music. We created original songs for the film, like Remember Me, mm-hmm. and, and uh, which was written by Bobby Lopez and Kristen Anderson Lopez, who wrote all the songs for Frozen. Um, but we also created a lot of songs with um, Adrian Molina, who's my co-director and screenwriter. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he wrote the lyrics for a number of the other songs in the film, and a woman named Germaine Franco great uh, arranger and composer that we worked with uh, wrote the music for those but we also tried to really embrace a lot of mexican music um when people hear mexican music they immediately think of mariachi and that that is a, a an important part of the the musical landscape of mexico but there's so many other genres there's so many other styles of 
of music there, and we wanted to try to embrace as many of them as possible. So I, I hope we um, you know, achieved uh, really paying homage to all the great music of Mexico in this film. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know in, in the past, Pixar, uh, you've, you, you, there's certain technical challenges you struggle with, like the flowing of hair or the wetness of clothes or something. Uh, was there anything specific that you, you came up against for this film, or you've sort of tackled everything now? Well, every film has its own challenges. We've kind of ta uh, tackled most major things at this mm. point. You know, anything that we dream up, we can put on screen. Um, but there were specific challenges to this film. We had never animated skeletons before. And we had to create right. a whole world full of skeletons and figure out what they were going to look like, how they were going to move, how we were going to be able to make them expressive. Um, so that was a big challenge. And then uh, one of the major challenges, something that people don't even think about, is clothing. Um, you know, it's, it hasn't been that long that we've had the technology to be able to tailor clothing and put it onto characters and right. have it move naturally. And uh, we, in this case, we had never done that with skeletons, so there were a lot of interesting <laughs> challenges in kind of draping cloth over bones right. um, and having it be controllable and look good. And, and, and then we're in the land of the dead where there are just thousands and thousands of skeleton characters. So just the, the sheer scale and scope of the film uh, made a lot of things difficult. Yeah. Uh, I know in the end, you directed uh, Toy Story 3, of course, mm -hmm. um, and at the start of that production, you, you got all your crew to shave your heads, is that right? Yeah, it wasn't at the start. We were kind of in the middle of right. making the movie. Yeah, okay. we we sometimes have crazy team-building yeah. exercises. Did you have any rituals for Coco? Uh, we didn't do anything crazy like that. I think we were so... We were so crunched on Coco. We were so busy hmm. that I think it was all we could do to just tackle each day and, and slowly chip away at getting the movie done. Um, I mean, we always have lots of parties and fun things along the way, but we didn't do anything crazy like shaving our heads this time. Okay. Because Pixar, from the outside, seems like uh, the best workplace in the world. You know, uh, the breakfast bar is the stuff of legend. Oh, um, the cereal? Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, what is, set aside from the filmmaking process, what's your favorite part of being a Pixar employee? Um, well, you know, we have a lot of great facilities there. You know, we have a gym and a swimming pool and pool tables everywhere. And I, unfortunately, I can never take part, partake in any of that because <laughs> I'm too busy to. Yeah. I always wonder who the people are that have time to <laughs> use that stuff. But um, I don't know. I think my favorite thing about being at Pixar is is getting to work with people that are just at the top of their game. Hmm. I mean, there are just so many talented people around me at all times. And um, it's really fun to have them on board on your project, uh, just elevating it. You know, uh, you know, I had a vision for this film at the beginning, but uh, I never could have imagined the film that it ended up being. And that's the result of, uh, you know, so many different people bringing their creative talents to bear on the film. And I, that's always been, I think, my favorite part of being at Pixar. Yeah. Um, I've, I've been a Pixar fan for since I was very small. I had I watched Toy Story basically on repeat for, mm -hmm. for one summer every morning. Me and my brother would watch it. And then another summer with Toy Story 2. There's something about these films that uh, I think has an obsessive value for some kids. Do you think, are you conscious of that when going into making a film? Well, I don't know. I mean, you know, we make films that we know that kids are going to watch, but oddly, we don't think about them all that much while we're making them. Like, we don't, we don't try, we don't make decisions um, based on what we think kids might like. Hmm. You know, we just, 
we just are making movies. We don't we don't think of them as any different than any other movie you would go see. We're just trying to tell a solid story and uh, create characters that the audience can get invested in and care about, and um, you know, try to make the movies fun and funny, but also you know, scary at times or sad at times. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's really what we're doing. We're just trying to make movies that we would like, and we just and we make sure that. There's nothing inappropriate for children because we know that kids are going to be part of the audience. So, yeah, we hear stories about kids watching the movies over and over again. And um, I guess all I'll say on that is I'm happy that we've made films that kids want to watch over and over again that their parents don't mind seeing over and over (laughs) again. Because I know, having raised three kids myself, there's some things that they like to watch that you just want to pull your hair out. You know, you, you just you can't imagine watching again. But yeah. somehow, I've had so many parents over the years say thank you for making movies that we don't mind having on right. endless repeat in our homes. Yeah, I, my parents still are okay with watching Toy Story, so it hasn't you know totally destroyed them um, from my obsessive nature. Uh, I I did want to ask briefly, um, you know, uh, the the big news that Disney have bought Fox. Um, I wondered if uh, there's been any discussion about what that means for Pixar or whether you bring in, because they have their own animation studio, of course. Right, they do. No, it's all so fresh and new that I think none of us uh, at either studio really quite know how everything's going to pan out ultimately. But um, I can't imagine that anything's going to change in any big way at Pixar. I mean, we do what we do. We make the kinds of movies that we make. And Disney has been very great to be, you know, pretty hands-off. They trust us to uh, to make good films. And we've had a lot of success with them. So I don't think they want to mess with the formula. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think that's all the time we have. But Lee, right. thank you so much for your time. Thanks. It's Appreciate great it. talking to you. Great talking to you. All right. So that was Lee Unkrich. And uh, before we get on to talking about the movie reviews this week and indeed Coco, uh, a couple of pluggy, pluggy things to do. Uh, so we have obviously our live show coming up on February 14th. That is our 300th episode, episode 300 of the podcast. And we're going to be doing that at the King's Place uh, on February 14th. And we're going to have a guest or two as well. It's going to be a lot of fun. Tickets are on sale right now at kingsplace.co.uk and then just search for the Empire Podcast and we would love to see you uh, there. Uh, Our Star Wars Last Jedi supporter special is now available with director Ryan Johnson. That is available to pour into your ears and our Blade Runner 2049 supporter special will be up on January 29th, Monday, January 29th to coincide with the film's release on digital, digital download and then upcoming after that, DVD and Blu-ray. So that's very, very exciting. We should record that. Yeah, we probably should. We should record that, uh, definitely at some point. Right, so that's that out of the way. Let's talk about Coco. Uh, Let's visit the land of the dead. Helen. Hello. So this is the story of Miguel, who is voiced by Anthony Gonzalez, who is a 12-year-old boy, and his family uh, don't allow him to play music. Don't allow anyone any music playing, because years and years and years ago, his great-great-grandmother was uh, abandoned by her husband who wanted to go off and play music and therefore there's been a ban on all music ever since. Miguel doesn't deal well with this um, so he wants to play in a talent show in the town square so he steals a guitar from the tomb of a dead kind of icon of Mexican history Ernesto de la Cruz who is a sort of massive uh, mid-century star in in, in, in this world in, yes. in Mexican history. Unfortunately by desecrating this tomb, essentially, uh, he is transported to the land of the dead and he needs his family's help there in order to get him home. Sounds like a, you know, a very interesting setup. 
mm. different locale for uh, for Pixar. Yeah, different locale. But then, I mean, they went metaphysical before with Inside Out, I guess, mm-hmm. and this is just metaphysical lure. Um, er, metaphysical er, sure. Um, so it's it's basically they've they've once again taken an incredibly difficult concept and expressed it incredibly beautifully, both you know visually and in terms of storytelling. Um, you know, you go across a bridge made of marigolds to get to the land of the dead. Uh, the land of the dead itself is one of the most spectacular things I've ever seen, animated or live action. It's sort of uh, continually under construction because, of course, people are continually arriving and it's building these towers because there's no health and safety in the land of the dead. And so from, you know, a base of kind of Mexican pyramids, if you look, they're like Aztec pyramids, and then they go up, the, the architecture style changes from the sort of Pueblo architecture into the sort of 19th century industrialists to, to sort of modern-day skyscrapers at the top. Mm-hmm. It's just conceptually, it's it's gorgeous. And everywhere there are the shape of skulls. If you actually look at the, really carefully around the screen, there's they're not just, almost in the negative spaces between these towers as well as in the actual architecture itself. It's it's a stunning, stunning place. But more importantly, it's it's a good story. You know, so Miguel has to find a member of his family who will send him home, give the him their blessing so that he can go. And of course, that sends him looking for the one person in his family who he knows played music, his great-great-grandfather, great mm great-grandfather, great-great-grandfather, who he has to find basically before dawn in order to get home safe. So the old ticking clock. Old ticking clock. There. It's very good. It's, yeah. It's yeah. very, it's funny, I wasn't all that excited about this one and not just because I'm a big old grump, although that's obviously part of it, but um, I really like the Book of Life and this just felt like, oh God, it's not, it's not going to be as good as the Book of Life. It is as good and yeah. indeed better than the Book of Life. Yeah. Uh, but you need to tell me how it ends because I don't know because I was a dribbling, crying, bawling mass on the floor <laughs> and missed the entire thing. Well, Genuinely. I'm not going to put that on the yes. podcast, oh, but yeah, I it was, is. I'm bawling my eyes out by the end of this film. It destroyed yeah, me. I was Absolutely too. destroyed me. Yeah. It's, um, I mean, yeah. even by Pixar standards, this is yeah. this is pretty messy. Actually, it's up there with the beginning of Up, like the end of this film, is, it really is. If I quiet films, I get like a little, you know, glossy in the eyes. And this one, I was properly... Like, <laughs> you yeah. know, like a... Like, like, a, like a peanuts character with tears exactly. flying out of your eyes in an arc. <laughs> it was, yeah, it was, it was it's, ugly tears. It's one of those. Yeah. Um, but it is. I mean, it's emotionally, it's incredibly poignant. It's it's really touching, and as Anne said, it looks stunning. Mm. It's absolutely beautiful film because it's it's very stylized. But the animation is is a layer above uh, for this kind of yeah. film. It really is. Um, and I think you mentioned in your review, like the Mexican streets look almost photoreal at times. Yeah, uh, in the real I mean, world, it's almost a criticism because I I actually genuinely was distracted sometimes to see a cartoon boy running down what appeared to be a totally real Mexican street. Right, like I was that that's just weird looking. You know, it, it, they're they're so good now, and it's it's not just the the physical you know design of the of the streets and everything, but just the lighting and the color and the, the texture. The texture yeah. of it is astonishing. Good lord! But I, I think what I thought was most impressive about it was not the animation, but the storytelling. It's mm. just amazing what they, how confident and assured they are these days with their storytelling. Yeah. And you know, like uh, how Inside Out was about uh, sadness and you know uh, complex emotions, mm-hmm. and then Up was about grieving. And this is all about sort of legacy and your family and memories, and and it's really powerful. And yeah. and they do it in such a clever way. Uh, they sort of sneak in these themes yeah. uh, in, a, in a very sort of... <laughs> yeah, like, while you're sitting there watching an ugly dog try to lick his own face, and, and then suddenly you realise you've just like learned something about the meaning of life. Yeah, yeah. it's true. But it's just, and it, it is in part about grief and, and, and being the mistakes you make and atoning for them right. and being separated from the ones you love. And it's all, you know, it's all of that kind of very touching heartland stuff that really sort of tear jerks. 
yeah, and maybe just be sure to hydrate before you go in. Yeah, absolutely. Or would you place this in the Pixar and Pantheon? Oh, don't do that. Yeah, no. Don't do that. It, it's somewhere up, up near the top. It's, it's up with the it's up with the ups and the inside outs mm, and the yeah. Toy Story threes for me. It's really and the, and the good dinosaurs and the Wallies. Don't, and the Wallies. Don't the I wouldn't Wallies. forget the Wallie. Yeah, yeah, and the good dinosaur. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I like the good dinosaur. Did you? I mean, it's yeah. fine. You're the one. More like the, the great the, dinosaur. Guys. That's, oh, that's come on. good that, god. That's... Yeah, but you're the one who wanted to give Finding Dory five, five stars. Stuff there them. is no excuse. You're kidding me. Them. No excuse. Just love everything Pixar have ever done. Cars three. Cars three. Love it. Oh my love god. It. Oh. You're diseased. Car, love it. Cars three is indisputably the the most recent of the Cars. <laughs> <laughs> but good, good Dinosaur destroyed me it absolutely it destroyed it me yeah I mean it, it did me too but me. I think for a different reason why it's, it's, it's a beautiful heartwarming dull. tale with this lovely not dull it's fine it's, it's, it's exactly how it's fine it's inoffensive it's not fine you're fine you know it's Thanks. no love it's no love actually and I think we can all agree that <laughs> <laughs> right five stars five stars five stars five, five stars. stars for Coco that sounds so good. Let's move on now to a potential Oscar heavy hitter, The Post, in which Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg team up once again, and this time they bring along plucky newcomer Meryl Streep and a cracking cast as well, cracking supporting cast. cast, for a true tale of how The Washington Post and The New York Times divided the Nixon White House and stood up for truth, justice, and that old chestnut, freedom of speech. Uh, in other words, this is a movie about shoving fake news up your arse. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a very kind of, this is an old-fashioned, growing-up drama, um, uh, very much in the tradition of, obviously, All the President's Men, which is almost, this is almost a prequel to that. So this is 1971, a classified government study known as the Pentagon Papers has been leaked. Um, And at the Washington Post, uh, Ben Bradley, who's the editor, played by Tom Hanks, really wants to get his hands on it, uh, especially when the New York Times is injuncted from publishing anything further. Meanwhile, the owner of the paper and the sort of the publisher, Kay Graham, who's played by Meryl Streep, mm-hmm. is facing her own problems. She is struggling to be noticed at all by the people who, in theory, work for her because she's a woman and she's always been kind of told that she's not really up to the job and she should let the guys get on with it. And uh, meanwhile, the, the paper's about to go up for a sort of a public offering, go up on the stock exchange. So she's under pressure to keep things on a steady, even keel and keep things going going nice and smoothly. And this threatens to massively rock the boat for the country, but also for the paper itself. These are clearly classified documents. By publishing, they could end up in prison, personally in prison, never mind the paper itself being sort of, you know, dragged over the coals for it. Um, so it is a massive, massive decision, and it falls essentially in the end to her to make. So uh, you've got this basically uh, quite empowering, I thought, story and, and Spielberg's most feminist film since The Color Purple easily, um, because you have this woman who's been told all, all her life that she's kind of second best, she's not good enough, she should let the, the guys do the important business thanks sweetie and just be a hostess which she's very good at but also um she's she's kind of stepping up and discovering that actually she does have some power she does have a voice and she can use it mm-hmm. um and that she she has the sort of the heart of a newspaper man uh somewhere beneath her caftan uh which is which is pretty inspiring stuff obviously streep and uh and hanks are brilliant obviously it's brilliant to see them together obviously the supporting cast are just ridiculously good you've got bruce greenwood you've got mm-hmm. josh lyman i'm sorry he has another name bradley whitford <laughs> um <laughs> you've got bob odenkirk who we talked about you know it's and david cross and david cross there, there are scenes in this movie where odenkirk and cross are, in, are sharing the same scene uh, again but they don't do any riffs <laughs> they don't do any funny funny business although david cross's wig is hilarious it is pretty funny yeah uh, you've got Michael Stilbarg as well, haven't you? I mean, it's just... Oh, Stilbarg. This is the kind of thing, like, you know, 
Steven Spielberg is waiting for the effect shots to come back for Ready Player One. So he just calls up Tom Hanks and Meryl Streep and just hmm. makes this, which is just ludicrous. Um, and of course, it's it's beautiful looking and everything else. It's not a terribly subtle film, I would say, in its message. Um, and I think its message is really important. I read one criticism of the film which said, oh, it's too busy flattering the press. I think it's doing the exact opposite of that. I think it's absolutely excoriating the modern press for not doing more of what mm. these guys did. Um, and I think it, if if people actually see it like that, I think it's a really powerful and a really important film. I don't think it's going to be a massive Oscar botherer. I think it'll get the nominations that it so clearly deserves. I don't think it's going to win just because it doesn't seem to have that momentum behind it. But it is, I think, a really, really good growing up drama and a fascinating character study of Kay Graham. I don't hugely disagree. I just thought that there are, there are moments of Spielbergian indulgence. But otherwise, I thought it was solid, dependable, uh, but it's oh, not it, it's not all the president's men. It's not on the same level as that. It's perfectly See, fine piece of entertainment. It's for me. It actually <laughs> is up there. But then I don't put that one on a pedestal quite as much, maybe as you do. I'm not putting it on a huge pedestal. I don't re- rewatch it there all the time. But that's a genuinely great film, and this mm. is not a genuinely great mm. film. But Helen has hummed me. <laughs> I have been hummed. You have eat that hum. I will I hum hummus mm, hummus. <laughs> Uh, so four stars down for the post. Helen, did you review it? You I didn't. It? No, I didn't. You sound like you actually might be, be in the five in this. I might, in, I might uh, edge yeah. towards. I might edge five words. I'm well, certainly I'm, more like four and a half. I'm a three. So we'll take your five <laughs> and my three. Put them together. Add them up. Divide them by two. What do you get? Four stars. There you go. Four stars for the post. Uh, <laughs> Do you remember? Do you remember nonstop where yes. Liam Neeson tried to track down a killer on a crowded plane? Mm, well, it. this is like that, but on a crowded train. So Whoa. the message of this film is clear. If you see Liam Neeson on the you know, W7 bus to Muswell Hill, get the fuck off that bus because bad shit is about to go down. Is this like a, a, a sort of a Roy Dr. Seuss thing? Like, I do not like him on a plane. I do not like him on a train. <laughs> I do not like him on a bus. He is nasty to all of us. Yes. I don't know. <laughs> so this is, uh, this, is, this is Big Liam. And he is he's an insurance salesman and he's laid off and uh, he does a commute to work every day from his home in New York into the city. And then on his way home from being laid off, uh, he's approached by a mysterious lady played by Fira Farmiga. She says, there's someone iffy on this train and if you can spot them, you're going to get $25,000. Uh, you know, you get $25,000 first of all uh-huh. and you'll have $100,000 if you find them. Yeah, and he's like... Well, but this isn't weird at all. And she's going, it's totally fine and all above board. Very and hypothetical. Then, We're oh, just playing a game just here. Just a game. And then it obviously turns out to be a big old murder conspiracy type mm. thing. And uh, old Big Liam gets, gets embroiled in it and has to figure out who the, the baddens are. Mm. I mean, it makes them. not a lick of sense. Like when you start, when, you know, as it unfolds, like no, none of that makes any sense whatsoever. How would they know those particular pieces of information but nothing else? Like it doesn't make... Anyway, the point no, is, yeah. <laughs> I, th- I thought there's some really nice uh-huh. touches in this film. Yes, I, I really like the sort of the montage at the beginning, just yes. showing the daily grind of commuting every day mm-hmm. from your sort of suburban home into work. I really like that he had genuine money worries, mm-hmm. and that that actually was a motivation for him, and not just he's a glowering, you know, super cop guy yeah. who has to figure everything out. Although it uh, turns uh, out he, he is, is a super cop because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. he, he was a cop. So yeah. I enjoy that they give us two options for the obviously bad guy um, rather than just the traditional one. Is Scoop McNary a passenger? He is not. He is not. He is not. not. So, you know, there's some nice touches here, but it is basically, 
exactly what you think it's going to be. Exactly what you think it's going to be. And if you're okay with that, which I was, sure. then it's fine. You know, it's 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 the fourth movie that Big Liam has made with uh, John May Collett Sarah. Uh, so they made Unknown together, they made Nonstop together, and they made Run All Night. And, and now this movie. And that is, I think, probably the three starriest run of movies in the history of movies. I mean... Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's fine. It's it's nonsense. It literally goes off the rails at one point because you think it's going to be this sort of Hitchcockian, quite claustrophobic thriller about the wrong man on a train and then it just goes full-blown bonkers towards full the end. Yeah, and it's, it's, you know, it is what it is. It is what it is. Kudos, I will say, there's an increasing number of movies that are letting Liam use his own accent. Yeah. Um, which, is, which is good because, you know, I, he's an amazing actor. But I would say that maybe over the years, he and the American accent haven't seen eye to eye. Can we speak about Northern Irish accents for a second? There was a trailer this week for The Terror, which is going to be on AMC this year. And that is an adaptation of a fantastic book by Dan Simmons, who's one of my favourite authors. Um, It's the story of a, a polar expedition, the Franklin expedition, to try and find the Northwest Passage, a previously theoretical passage across the north of Canada to get to the Pacific to avoid having to go around the Cape of Good Hope. No, the other one. Anyway, uh, at the bottom of South America. So um, explorers kept trying to find this Northwest Passage. They were convinced that at Uh least for a couple of months a year, they'd be able to go through here. Basically, all of them died, uh, including the Franklin (laughs) Exhibition. But this is a fantastic, literally fantastic spin on that story. And it is just an amazing piece of drama. But what they've got in it is Kieran Hines, who is from Northern Ireland, playing an Englishman. Mm -hmm. And Jared Harris, who is kind of more English, playing... A Banbridgian, Chris, yes. from your own hometown. Yes, he is indeed. Is this uh, a prequel to Derry Girls? I'm confused. Um, it's the, the other side of Northern Ireland, but sure, if you're just going to tar us all with that brush, that's fine. Yes. So in Banbridge Town and the County Down, uh, there is a statue at the bottom of the town of Francis Crozier, for it is he, surrounded by polar bears, for it is they. And because it was not really known what happens to him, which is something that that, that Dan Simmons exploits to, to great effect yes. in the terror. Uh, it's a phenomenal book. And uh, I actually spoke to Jared Harris. I interviewed him for the magazine about two weeks before he started work on The Terror. And I said, you're playing Francis Crozier, who's from my hometown. So if you need any tips on the accent, then just (laughs) just give me a shout. But of course, Francis Crozier would have been an upper class guy. So he would have had a very, very different accent from... There is still a me. wee tinge there, though. So There's a little yeah. tinge. There's a tinge. A bit of a tinge excitement for us. of Banbridge. <laughs> up the ban and the bubble. So, three stars for the commuter. That was a bit three of a tangent. Three stars for the commuter, sorry, <laughs> yeah. Uh, you liked it? You thought it was fun? I mean, I was yeah. entertained. Yeah, absolutely. Are you not entertained? I mean, I've forgotten it practically already, and it was only about a week ago, but, you know, it's yeah. fine. That is it for this week's Empire Podcast. Join us next week for more film-related fun where we'll be joined by the double whammy that is early man's Nick Park, the legendary Nick Park, and Tom Hiddleston, some newcomer making his first appearance on the Empire Podcast. All very, <laughs> very exciting. Uh, until that auspicious occasion, it is goodbye from John. Goodbye. It's goodbye from James. Bye. It's goodbye from Helen. Tiddly. And it's goodbye from me. I'm off to... Chris, you're, you're a twat! Seems fair. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye.